0: Shapeshifters, on The Money Show. Tonight's Shapeshifter is Michael Spicer, once an executive director at Anglo-American South Africa. He's uh, a non-executive chairman of Anglo-American South Africa. He's a member of the board of Rothschild South Africa. He's got some very high-powered positions, including, and I've just seen that he became the chairman of my alma mater as well, Rhodes University, and he's been invited bizarrely, I think, to give economic advice to the president of Malawi. Why not in South Africa? But he is an activist in his own way. He's a lobbyist for big business in South Africa. He is the vice president of business leadership South Africa. He's in our Cape Town studio. I'm in our Joburg studio. But it's nice to have you on, Michael Spicer.
1: Thanks very much, Bruce. Evening to you and to the listeners.
0: Um, Are you an activist?
1: Uh, Yes, I I think you could say that, but uh, in a business way.
0: An activist Uh, in a tie and a jacket uh, (laughs) with impeccable
1: manners. (laughs) Shed the tie these days.
0: Okay. Um, But, but yeah, because business lobbying has gone very quiet in South Africa. Is that a fair comment? A lot of people criticize uh, business lobbyists for going too quiet.
1: Yes, and I think my, my own perspective now, having been in this game for some two and a half decades, is that a public profile is part of the constructive engagement with government. You know, you do have to engage with government and many critics, I think, miss that a formal relationship is required. You can't just sit on the sideline. But you have to keep your other constituents informed of the kinds of discussions that you're having and the views that you hold. So the two are complementary. You can't just do one or the other.
0: How did you get into lobbying? Because you've been in the lobbying game for, for a long time, almost as long as I think you were in the sort of formal day-to-day, um, sort of day-to-day running the, r- running the business of Anglo for, for a long time.
1: Yes, and I guess that was the route. You know, my training is as a historian, and then I worked, uh, in a delightful phrase, in international relations in London and then South Africa. What the, does
0: that mean?
1: Well, there are these uh, eccentric and extraordinary institutions, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, Chatham House, which brings together the worlds of diplomacy, politics, business, uh, the media um, and uh, academia, and they d- discuss matters of international relations. And, I, you know, I, I was thinking about an academic career, but I got much more interested in how business related to these because I, I was impatient with the endless discussion. I wanted to see action. So when I came back to South Africa after spending a time at the South African Institute, I approached the then chairman of Anglo-American, Gavin Relly, who happens to be my, my hero. He was my mentor, but a man I very much admire and said, I want to come and work for you, and it happened to be the time of the early scenarios. And quite soon I became the public face of Anglo-American, both at home and abroad, and a major role there was interacting with government and trying to explain what made business tick and what business really required to play its proper role in society. So, did you do the Chatham
0: House stint? And Chatham House is on St James's Square, right? Absolutely, and, uh, very salubrious
1: uh, part of London.
0: I, I, I was wandering through, just as one does in London. You kind of get you go and get yourself lost. I went, "That's Chatham House, on yes. St James's yes. Square," and uh, I sort of had this nostalgic moment. And you see the blue plaques in London of who lived in those houses, uh, and, and it is you do feel a, a sense of history as you work there. The South African Institute of International Affairs, as well. Did that come before your stint at Anglo American? Yes. Yes. Um,
1: And, you know, I think it was both were very good preparations because they introduced me to an extremely wide network, both internationally of people who were concerned with Africa and South Africa, and then all the opinion formers uh, in South Africa itself, whether in business, government, the media, you know, diplomats, journalists.
0: Those networks, though, are ever changing and they're ever and they're very, very fluid. The networks that you built up 20 years ago at Chatham House and uh, at Jan Smuts House probably don't exist anymore or do they?
1: There are a few, uh, you're quite right, they do change, so you have to update all the time and that's part of this kind of activity is constant networking. I for many years used to go to Davos and that, that was the networking opportunity supreme. But you can't rest on your laurels, you can't just assume that people stay in the same job, they don't, they move on, they retire, they die, they, they do different things. So <clears throat> part of your activity has got to be always renewing your networks. Um,
0: the, the power of networking, I mean, in, in your world of influence and lobbying and seeking advantage for interest groups, networking has got to be absolutely crucial.
1: It is crucial, and you must have a personal relationship. And so, although there can be a curse, cocktail parties and black tie <laughs> dinners, <you> know, <laughs> there was a time when my wife simply refused to come to any more. She said, unless you declare it's a national state of emergency. <laughs> And I had sympathy because many of those events, you know, particularly the dinners, you, you're sitting eating food you don't want to eat, listening to speeches you don't want to listen to, and sometimes interacting with people that you really have nothing much in common with. But at the same time, almost all events bring you some sort of reward in terms of renewing an old relationship, establishing a new one, just checking up who's doing what. And those come into play when you need something, when you need to talk to somebody, put a case somewhere you can instantly access the right people.
0: Yeah, we heard fabulous stories about how when Nelson Mandela came out of jail and he went to the big uh, first business meeting between the ANC and business at uh, the Carlton Hotel. Um, and in true Nelson Mandela style, he looked across the room. He found Gavin Relly's eye. Gavin Reilly, the most powerful business person in South Africa at the time, no doubt, and said, Mr. Relly, I've been looking forward to meeting you. Um, Gavin Relly, tell me about him. You, talk, you tell me that yeah, he's your hero. He's your mentor. Yeah. Were you one of those guys who in the old tradition of Anglo-American sort of came through the ranks as the personal assistant and sort of learned at the feet of the master?
1: Well, I was slightly unusual in the sense that I'm not Oxbridge, and I didn't join in my early 20s or mid-20s. I joined when I was 32, having done some different things. Um, But I did become his PA, and there's a delightful story which I think illustrates the wisdom and statesmanship of of really. You know, we had met him, um, Nelson Mandela, a little earlier. Ten days after he was released, we went to visit him in his Soweto home. This was the time when Cyril Ramaphosa was riding shotgun, um, and there was a horde of journalists outside with their microphones, and they were all buzzing with the, the issue of nationalisation. We went in, had 45 minutes with uh, the great man, and because Cyril had set the agenda, we talked about labour relations. The big N-word didn't uh, get mentioned. So as we exited, uh, all the journalists shoved their microphones up Gavin Reilly's nostril and said, Mr. Reilly, Mr. Reilly, what about nationalisation? And he uttered an epigram which I think summed up exactly what transpired over the next decade or two. He said, you know, nationalization is one of those things that will be subject to the test of time and reality, full stop. Uh, and it said it all. And that's exactly how that issue played out.
0: Uh, it is astonishing. I mean, people like Gavin Reddy, really, and i never had the privilege of meeting him, but had... A very, very big understanding and a very well-rounded understanding of not only the past, but could also somehow almost see into the future. What was? How does that skill get defined over over many years? You see, I think it was part
1: of that uh, Anglo culture at the time that Harry Oppenheimer surrounded himself with people who were not narrow businessmen. He encouraged them to play a much wider role in society to have extensive interests in all sorts of activities. And Gavin really was a man who read widely, he thought deeply, he was the man who set up the scenario process uh, in the dark days of the mid-1980s. Uh, I can remember <clears throat> one occasion when we went to Canada in the late 80s, him talking to the assembled elite of Canadian business and he ranged far and wide, he talked about Uh, why the Soviet Union was bound to decline in the face of Reagan's Star Wars. He talked about the influence of China and Japan. He talked about Africa and how he was quite confident South Africa would resolve its issues. He he then deployed some of the things that we'd done for the scenario process. And I could see this look of absolute amazement on the faces of Canadians that this man (laughs) from an obscure part of Africa could have such an extensive and wide-ranging view of the world. Uh, and the Canadian business people were quite parochial. You know, this was the centre of Canadian business life in Toronto, but I, I doubt if there was anybody who could have that kind of scope.
0: Do we have it today? Do we have No
1: I think of, we've, of that we No, I, I do think we've, we've lost something about that. And to some extent, you know, it was natural when South Africa rejoined the world community, the world, the global economy... People normalized a little bit. Uh, They paid attention to some of their business affairs internationally that had gone by the board because of the days of isolation and the hothouse economy. Uh, And there was a period when people said, well, you know, that's politics. We now have a legitimate government. There's no longer any need for us to stray uh, into those fields. I think it's begun to come back a little bit, but I don't sense it's really... At the level that it should be, and many of the big corporations, and I've said it to them for some time, should have far more people on their staffs who are expert in these things. They have got to – this is such a big part of doing business now. Uh, You need to staff up. You can't just leave it to chance.
0: But a lot of people like that are seen as, you know, we can bring a consultant in occasionally to to tell us what we need to be thinking and then we'll carry on. We're not going to do original thinking for ourselves. We're too busy with the business of doing business. We have shareholders to keep happy every six months. We have got numerous stakeholders to keep happy every six months. Uh, The business of thinking can go elsewhere and we'll fund a think tank or we'll do something like that. We'll outsource it. I think it's
1: a very big mistake. Um, You know, consultants... don't have the, the feel. They're always trying to sell uh, an angle and keep a relationship. Really, you need to nurture your own people. There are a few of the big companies that uh, have, have got some people operating, but not nearly enough, and the same is true. For organized business, it's not staffed up at the appropriate level with people who really pay full-time attention to these issues. Uh, and I think business is putting its future at risk by failing to invest sufficiently in people who um, do this all the time and are expert in those activities.
0: Are you suggesting we should be going away of the American lobbyists in, in that sense? You know, that a I, I, the,
1: the reason I don't like the phrase lobbying, and, and I've always said this to foreigners, this, this is not Washington. Uh, the way we interact with uh, people here is much more collegial. It's a face-to-face human relationship thing. That's how business is done in Africa. And so all the successful business engagements have not been in-your-face, hard-on type lobbying, a la Washington. They've been born of common projects, common understandings, building relationships over a long period of time. So I think there is quite a distinction. And in, in that respect, I was always sympathetic with people like Trevor Manuel who had a real allergy to lobbying.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, it's in your face, it's brash, it's uh, it's attention. And, 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 l- l- and let's take a very
1: contemporary example, the yeah. bust-up over the pharmacy uh, plan to... Oh,
0: absolutely, Dis- now,
1: diabolical, yes. It, 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 it was simply a legitimate activity that was completely wrongly positioned and some very unfortunate language which allowed then, of course, uh, the minister to play politics and to indulge in hyperbole and both sides then contributed to much less understanding than they had even before, so... Uh, This was a sort of uh, lose-lose activity and it was precisely because it was not geared to the South African environment.
0: When we look at your day-to-day activities nowadays, well, well, how do you keep yourself occupied? I, I see that you are now the, the chairman of Rhodes University in Grahamstown. You're a history graduate from Rhodes University. You must have studied under the fantastic professors Hummel and Davenport in your day. Absolutely, they, yeah. They, they had they, they were the legendary professors of history at Rhodes University. Well, and course. you're
1: missing out the redoubtable Winifred A. Maxwell, Wham, as she was known.
0: Well, Wham, she used to Wh- call Wham Vi- was no longer there when I was. No,
1: she used to call the Vice <laughs> chancellor. Sonny or Ducky. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, Five foot nothing day. and a
1: chain smoker. Oh,
0: yeah. Now,
1: look, I, you, you know, I taught in between degrees at, at a high school, and ever since then I've retained a lively interest in education. So I've been chairman of a school board with my alma mater, St. John's, yeah, exactly. and then I felt I should give back to uh, my university alma mater, so I became chairman of the board of governors there. And I'm mentoring a whole range of young people. So education in, in, in its various forms is something that I, you know, in a different life I could have stayed in education because I certainly found that extremely rewarding working with young people.
0: Please um, back me on history as an education. I think History is the most wonderful subject. I couldn't the, uh, think, you
1: know, uh, of a better training for the field that I ended up in. And, of course, it wasn't conscious. I never knew that I was <laughs> going to go in this direction. But uh, teaching you A discriminating mind, the ability to evaluate uh, people and events, to put them in a historical context, uh, to see how people in the past have reacted to similar circumstances, that skeptical, questioning mind, I think it's a really fantastic uh, training.
0: I, I mean history has just been the most remarkable from a journalism point of view also the understanding of trying to distinguish fact from fiction um, and so much history is sort of embellished as well as we... Yeah, so uh, as, as we <clears> you know. I've
1: been a great proponent of liberal arts education you know I think there is probably too much specialisation too early and one of the great things about Rhodes is that it is par, par excellence the liberal arts university um, and it's something that the Vice-Chancellor Salim Badat insists on and I very much back him on that. But it has How? its hard disciplines as well.
0: Absolutely. How do you get to become an economic advisor, a presidential economic advisory council of the government of Malawi where they don't have decent roads? Well, I, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I'm
1: on the board of the Brentist Foundation, okay. which is the Oppenheimer family um, uh, outfit which provides advice on request by African governments and presidents. And we were requested by the new president of uh, Malawi, Joyce Bander, and she put together an economic advisory council, uh, a very, very um, diverse group of luminaries internationally and some South Africans, and I was one of those. Um, and I must say it's been absolutely fascinating, uh, looking at a different situation. And um, it's a country that has enormous challenges, of course, very poor uh, has some assets but they're underdeveloped and an appalling legacy from her predecessor. So um, uh, providing advice that is practical and not just theoretical and is doable in the within the political constraints I think provides a foil to what one understands as the challenges
0: here in South Africa. How do you bring what you're learning there, here in your role as the Deputy of Business Leadership, South Africa? Well...
1: I think there are commonalities and one of the things I've been very, very keen on since my days at, um, Jan Smuts house is the need to have much stronger regional integration. Of course, we've had a lot of hot air for 20 years on regional integration, but little implementation. And it's such a no brainer in terms of raising the performance of all the economies across the continent, but naturally immediately in Southern Africa, um, and But there there's some very boring nuts and bolts things that have to be done. Trade facilitation, visas, getting the factors of production across the borders more efficiently, effectively, and cheaply. These are the things that politicians don't generally tend to think about and talk about. They talk about lofty ideals, pan-Africanism, and so on, and so on, and so on. So we need to get much more real, and working in a bunch of African countries, I think, has driven that home. Uh, and there are some moves, uh, I think, in South Africa to do that. Uh, but we need to be much, even more focused. Part of our challenge of raising the growth rate here to provide the resources for government to do all the things it needs to do is to have better markets within the subcontinent.
0: Are, is business getting a fair hearing in government?
1: Look, there are legacy issues, uh, inevitably, with our past uh, that have not played out. They're partly generational. I do feel quite strongly that uh, my generation will never get rid of the baggage entirely. You know, you can work hard at it, but it will require some younger people to, to really shed that. Um, then there are some unfortunate fractures within business, not just, um, can you believe it, along language lines, but... Uh, inevitably between black and white business people uh, and a lot of work needs to be done to put those together and then people talk glibly all over the world about business by its nature it is competitive it is individualistic driven by people with well-developed egos who have very different interests if they are big medium or small if they're importers or exporters if they're bankers or miners um, their, their natural state of activity is not uh, collegial uh, and co They have to work hard at that Um, and government is often you know I sympathise sometimes when they throw up their hands and say but who must we talk to? At the same time um, I remember a number of them who've been quite disingenuous uh, about saying if only we could get one voice of business you know you will seldom get one voice of business on all issues. You may On supranational issues that clearly have a common uh, framework for all business, but there is going to be contestation. I can remember some delightful, um, (laughs) very sharp debates on the rand and its appropriate level. Oh, absolutely! And the miners were had one (laughs) view, and the bankers (laughs) had another view, and the manufacturers had even a different view. Uh, You know, there are some issues where the interests are just going to be very different.
0: Does the State of the Nation address matter tomorrow?
1: You know, I, I, in the period that we are before an election, uh, I would have relatively low expectations of this. Will you watch uh, it? Will you listen? I will absolutely and um, indulge in a, in a bit of sort of criminology uh, to abstract any nuggets that might be buried there. But uh, the period after the election is really going to be when we hopefully will see, uh, I was listening to your earlier interview, the implementation of a number of key reforms which will raise the growth rate because business as usual is going to deliver more of the same, lumbering along at 2%, and that, frankly, is unsustainable for all the reasons that we know.
0: Michael Spicer, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Tonight's Shapeshifter thoroughly enjoyed the discussion with the Vice President of Business Leadership.